Super glad to have you. So CEO of Ugmonk. Yep. All right. So tell us what is what is Ugmonk? Yeah. So Ugmonk is a product design studio that I started almost 14 years ago, which is aging myself a little bit. But I started as a side project to design shirts that I wanted to wear. That was literally it. I was okay. Like, All right. I just want to make shirts. I want. I was doing a lot of t-shirt design uh, in college, and I was like, I want to make shirts. I want to make. I don't see these designs anywhere. What if I just did it and printed some and tried to sell something? Didn't know anything about business, e-commerce, and like social. It was like pre-social media, 2008. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but it was just to, to make products that I wanted. And that kind of snowballed slowly over the course of the last 13, 14 years into what it is today. Um, and I've just been making it up as I go one day at a time. Yeah. But yeah. It's been, it's been a really fun journey and not your typical path into business. So, yeah. So you, um, have not always been an entrepreneur. What, how'd you sort of get your, uh, how, what'd you cut your teeth on originally to, to kind of prepare you for Ugmunk? I mean, I should have probably had a business plan and thought about thought about it a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, so looking back, I'll back up a step. Um, like growing up, I was always into making things, creating things. Mm -hmm. Like art was just coming out of me. So if it was cardboard and duct tape, it was Legos, it was whatever I could get my hands on, you know, a paintbrush. I was always drawing and doing that. That was so natural to me to make things. Um, and that's what still continued to this day with Ugmunk. It's like, I just love making things, love the tangible, yeah. like this idea in my head that I conceptualize and then I can actually put it through the stages and then have a finished thing. Um, the biggest change was like when I, somebody will pay actual money for that thing that I made. And it's like, as the creator, that's so rewarding. Um, so I always had that passion. I never thought of myself as the entrepreneur. Like my older brother was the guy that was like, had a newspaper route when he was like 12. He's on his bike throwing newspapers. And I was like, I don't know. I'm, that seems like a lot of work. And I just, you know, it wasn't like I was the kid that was doing that, you know, selling magazines door to door. Um, but like, I actually had a, a biz, a lawn business in high school that I bought for my friend and uh, he was going off to college and he's like looking for someone to buy it. And I started mowing lawns and I took that from like, I think we we're at 12 or 13 lawns and I grew it to like 25 by the time I was done and passed it down to my brother. And like, people are like, you always were an entrepreneur. You were, and, and like, I guess I never, you never thought pictured. of yourself no, that way. Never yeah. thought about it that way. But I realized, I think what I realized was the control. So the harder you work in a lawn business, the better the payout is. Mm -hmm. It was a totally different mindset than like the hourly job I had working at the, the nursing home before that, like uh -huh. my first job ever. And I was like, this is a whole lot better. Like if I just want to mow 13 lawns in a day, like then I can get the rest of the week off. So there was something entrepreneurial about me, but I didn't, I never would have called myself an entrepreneur. All right. So talk about the lawn business. Did you mow at angles and like do designs <laughs> in the yards? Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I didn't put any, you know, I wasn't like putting like typography designs in the lawn. Yeah. Like yeah. That. Um, but it was like, you know, about efficiency and how do we, how do I get these lawns? You know, we'd have like three lawns in a row in these neighborhoods and I could mow them all in one swipe. And I was yeah. like, this is great. Yeah. Um, so kind of always think about optimizing and, and how do you, you know, take those just simple things and make them better. Mm. But that's all like hindsight in the moment. I was like, I don't know, I'm mowing lawns and I'm making a lot of money doing this and I only have to work two or three days a week. Um, but the entrepreneur side of Ugmonk was really born out of like, I'm making these things. I'm having fun making them. I want them. I'm telling my friends. And then the rest of it was like, okay, I got to build a website. I got to have some sort of plan here. Uh, what are we going to call it? How are we going to do this? I didn't know how to ship anything. I didn't, like the second order that came in was like to Australia. And I'm like, I've never sent Question anything international. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, what's a customs form and are we charging enough for shipping? So literally yeah. like, that's why I introduced myself as designer by trade and entrepreneur by accident, because I literally fell into this thing. I wasn't the kid that dreamed of starting businesses. So that's so great. Yeah. Well, on your website, you have uh, this story about the Mexican fisherman. 
I, I think that's a, a you should tell us that story. Yeah, I'll give you the kind of the summary of it the best okay. I can. Okay. Uh, so it's a fable and, and this wasn't original to us, but it kind of it really characterizes the way that I think about business and the way I think about running Ugg Monk. Um, and so the story goes something like this, where there was a fisherman uh, in a small village and he's out there with a small boat catching fish. And then there's a banker that's on vacation out in the same uh, place. And he sees this fisherman and he says, wow, like, you know, look at these fish you just caught. If you stayed out here a little bit longer, you could catch a few more fish and then you could buy another boat and you could have another, you could have, you yeah. could hire people and you can have more than this. The entrepreneurial evolution. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's just naturally. And then, and the fisherman says, you know, I'm good. Like I, I have enough to feed my family. I can stay with my kids after work. We get to eat well, we get to enjoy the, you know, outdoors. And the, the bankers kind of look at him like puzzled, like, why don't you like, you're such a good fisherman. You could do so much more like you could grow and then you could sell off your whole business. And then the fisherman's kind of like, and then what? It's like, then I can enjoy time with my kids. I could have enough for my family and, you know, I could be content with life. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that that kind of mimics the way that I'm building Ugmonk is it's not to scale into a global brand. Um, I mean, I want to grow the business. Don't get me wrong. Like yeah. everybody wants to be growing their business to, to keep it healthy and reaching new people and seeing the products go. But the goal is not to find this like mystical pot of gold that doesn't exist at the end of the rainbow. Like yeah. we're, if you're just aiming for that, that time to sell the business and cash out. I feel like it's just a different mentality of the way that you build that business. So yeah, I'm more like the fisherman who's like, I'm enjoying the fishing. I love doing what I'm doing right now. I love the building process. I love the product design. I love being in the thick of it, having my hands on the business versus I can't wait till like in five years, I think I can get acquired or I can sell and then I'll what, like start another business. Yeah, again, yeah. Right? So, I, And I'm just wired that way. I don't know that everyone's wired that way, but I'm not wired to grow and scale huge businesses. Like I'm just not a great manager and, and, and thinking about business in that sense. I love the day to day, like doing of the thing. Yeah. Like this is what we get up and do, right? Yeah, like, you just most describe yourself as a yeah. tradesman first, right? Exactly. But that, that has a lot to do with, uh, there's a spark that you're chasing, right? There's something more special about this. It's not an outcome that you're looking for that is some sort of financial benefit. There's a spark that you're chasing. What's sort of mm -hmm. the thing that's got you What's the thing that you think about all the time? Like when you talk about growth, mm -hmm. what's the why? What's the spark there? Yeah, making better things. Like I, I think I look at the world through this lens of like, how can I make a better version of that? You know, so there's frustrating things, the way a door handle works, the way a water bottle leaks, mm. the way that your desk gets messy. I'm always looking at like, and, and this is just my weird brain. I'm just, I think I've done this ever since I was a kid. Like, why do the hinges on the door work like that? And I'm just kind of like thinking, is there a better way to do that? And is there a more beautiful way of doing that? So combining these things and, and usually how I sum up like the thread that ties all of our products together is the marriage between form and function. So mm. does it look beautiful and does it work as good as it looks? And if one of those is out of sorts, you know, if it only looks beautiful, but every time you use it, you're like, oh, this is annoying. Um, there's a problem. But if it works great and it's so ugly, you have to hide it away in a closet every time somebody comes over. That's a problem, too. So I'm trying to marry these things of like making better things and beautiful things. And I think we're all wired for beauty. We love to look at aesthetically pleasing things, Yeah, but we also want them to like be the thing I want to grab. Like the Ugg Monk shirt is the one you want to grab when you go on a trip, you know, yeah. the analog card system is what you want to use every day. And it's like, that's what, it, that's the spark that drives me. Oh, it's good. Well, the, you know, the business started off as a side hustle, right? You talked about the t-shirts and stuff like that. Talk about when it became like a full-time thing for you. Yeah, 2010 uh, was when I went full time. But I mean, honestly, to the, the, the beginning, people started asking me like, oh, are you starting a business? You're going to do this full time. And I'm looking at them like, 
No, like I, I'd have to sell a lot of shirts to do this full time. And uh, a couple of years later, I was selling enough shirts to make it kind of take the jump. And 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 this is also like a, a point in the story too, where this was unique to me and where I was at in life. Uh, I was married, no kids, renting an apartment, didn't have a lot of commitment. My wife was working. Um, so the joke was that I was starv the starving artist while she was the, the breadwinner for a while when I took the leap. But people said, How, wasn't it risky to like leave your full-time job? And I was like, back then, I mean, the risk was there, but it was also the right point like of inflection, of inflection for me to jump into doing Ugg Monk full-time. And I was like, I think if I could work on this all day, I could probably replace my salary, which was just entry-level designer yeah, at an yeah. agency. Um, so yeah, when I went full-time, the, the economy was not the best mm -hmm. <laughs> back back then, but it also was the the turning point for when Ugg Monk started to gain more traction than just selling five or 10 shirts a week. It was like, okay, now I can actually put my, my whole head into this space to really create things. Oh, that's great. You know, something that, um, I mean, that you just said was, uh, you know, you talked about like the door hinges, why do they do that? And, and there's this, the spark of, um, I, I would say that a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, they design their business around solving problems or, uh, and a lot of them, like you talked about, we'll talk about scale and, and talk about the, the financial outcomes and things like that. But there's something that is driving uh, you in a way that you approach the improvements on things and the aesthetics that you, uh, or the aesthetic attention you put on them. And it's this minimalism thing. So talk to us about like minimalism and what, what, what's sort of like the, cause that's a bit of your how, right? Mm -hmm. and, and a bit of your aesthetic. Yeah, minimalism is is a great buzzword right now, right? Like everything's yeah. minimalist and minimalism and, and simplicity, I think, almost to the point where those words have lost their meaning. Um, you know, there's even the documentary, The Minimalists, these two guys that talk about minimalism, which are, it's a really great uh, idea and mentality. And I think they have a lot of great things to say, but the word minimalist, minimalism and minimalist kind of is like, what does that mean? Just like a black dot on a white page, is that minimalism? Um, so the way I think about it is more around Minimalism means clarity um, and it means less but better. So Dieter Rams, a, a famous industrial designer uh, who's who's really like a role model for the way what I aspire to someday, mm -hmm. you know, create products like he did. He had this phrase less but better. And minimalism is not about just having nothing, right? Like just seeing take everything off the page and just have a logo. It's about like the clarity and the communication that happens when you strip away all the unnecessary parts. So it's like peeling away, peeling away, peeling away in order to ride to to allow that main thing to kind of be central and focused on. Um, and I think in life, in design, in all of that, it it plays into it. And I think again, we're wired. We'd rather have like a, a menu that has less options and just kind of clearly shows you what to pick from yeah. than this book that you have to sift through and it's like overwhelming and there's choice and there's so much going on. But minimalism is an aesthetic. But it's more than a, an aesthetic. I think it actually goes a lot deeper than just how something looks. It's an approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Um, I wonder. Uh, you know, it, it seems like there's a purpose behind that, right? And so, you know, uh, one of the things that has been really good about just the the little bit that we've gotten to know each other is it seems like you're a real uh, values centric person. So, like, um, as it relates to maybe sales and things like that, and keeping your how and your why, what what are some of the maybe the values that you have and 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 how they show up in places that people wouldn't expect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, you know, like as, as I'm running a business, there's a tendency to just keep doing more of everything. It's hard to kind of pull back when there's opportunity everywhere. And I think 
right now in this time where you can create a website really quickly. Mm -hmm. You can create a store, you can create an Instagram, you can do everything. You could capitalize on the trend that's whatever the trend is now. You know, if it's fidget spinners, like let's go on that, let's go on that. You could really get tied up in like jumping around to all these different things and trying to latch on to that stuff. And I have to kind of really like pull back and I'm trying to think, th think of everything through this lens of like, I want this to exist now and five and 10 and 15 years from now and creating things that have more of a timelessness to them and I kind of have to put them through that filter to be like, all right, am I just doing this because it's hot right now? Are we trying to do too much? Or can we pull back and really focus on fewer things? Uh, again, less but better, right? Like fewer, better things and put my time and attention into that. Like I've been working on a new product line, which I haven't teased yet. Maybe I can show you guys after okay, the podcast. Okay, all right. Um, for two and a half years and I haven't, I haven't teased it out or shown anyone, but we've been, we spent over a thousand hours on this product line and it feels like sometimes like, are we ever going to launch this thing? But on the other side, it's like, we're getting everything dialed exactly the way and that, you know, it's gotta be, every detail has gotta be perfect. And it's the opposite of rushing things to market and like move fast and break things. We're doing the opposite. We're like move slow and perfect every detail. Oh, that's amazing. So do you guys have like a cutting room floor of ideas uh, that are just like, what does that look like? I mean, how many of these things that you're like, yeah, ah, let's abandon that. Yeah. I think my brain is that cutting <laughs> my head is man ideas for me are the easy part and i know to some people they're like i can't think of anything like i you give me a blank sheet of paper i can't think of a single thing i have so many ideas and concepts and things where i'm constantly just like observing the world and seeing things and i'd love to make a version of this or better this that's so easy for me to come up with it's more of like how do we focus on which thing do we focus on right like which goes on the back burner while we're working on the one thing that's on the front burner and you have limited space like if you're using that metaphor of like the stove you can only have a couple things on the front and the rest has to get pushed back and that's where i get really impatient as a designer because i'm like oh there's i want to make this i want to make this i want to make this but trying to focus and like rein myself in and and i'm really like the creative product design is still driven by me as the owner of the company and uh trying to focus and trying to pull back on kind of pacing things out like i want to yeah. do this for a long time so maybe that's 2025 we start working on that yeah and that seems like an eternity but it's it's a slower methodical approach of business uh, it's it's amazing and one of the things that was has been super clear is the way that you guys you know you're a bootstrapped organization right you mm -hmm. haven't uh, pursued funding so I, I i think it'd be really helpful just to give everybody a little bit of an understanding of of why you think and describe sort of the uh ug monk story as counterintuitive to starting a business mm -hmm. Yeah, and part of this comes because I didn't go to business school and I didn't even look at different business models, looking at a VC funded startup or getting angel investors and doing all this. Like, I didn't even know that stuff existed. <laughs> and I still feel like an outsider in that world, like in the world of tech where things are moving so fast and people are, you know, valuations and, and trying to IPO and all this. I'm like, I'm still more like a, an old school mom and pop craftsman style business from 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I like that. So we're using the digital tools but we're used also you know to get out there to promote to market but we're still really building things like they did a hundred years ago mm -hmm. where you had the cobbler in town who was the best you know shoemaker and repairs so we're we're doing that and to me that's normal like because i'm like i'm gonna find the best craftsmen around to make our products so we partner with small manufacturers and a lot of them now in pennsylvania where i can drive to and i can be in the shop where the woodworking is happening happening um, you know, you leave there covered in sawdust. And for me as a designer, I'm like, this is what I want to be You're doing. In it. Yeah. And, and if someone was to say, here's, you know, X number of dollars in funding, I don't even know what I would do with it because I'm not trying to like pour gasoline on the fire. I really want to be intentional about how we're growing 
Um, and to other people, they're like, man, I, I would love a million dollars right now. We could do all this and you can, we could run ads and we can do that. We could do that. Yeah. Um, but I think for me, that's, it's counterintuitive, I guess, to the, the normal business culture that's out there. Mm-hmm. And I think it's okay to run a slower old school business, like, yeah. and be in it for the long haul. Um, I'm not building to sell. I mean, it's, I want to keep doing this for a long time because I love doing the thing. Yeah. I'm not trying to sell myself out of doing that. And I think people need to give themselves like that uh, option just to keep doing the thing that they love. You know, um, there was a study a few years ago in a book that was written about this uh, exact concept and exact thing. And this guy named Bo Burlingham wrote a book called Small Giants. And it was all about uh, entrepreneurs who were intentionally uh, trying to build the best business that they could and and had the opportunity to sort of scale well beyond you know what it what it was but the experience and all of these sort of elements were uh so important especially to things like the uh these guys and gals were all very local in nature uh, and things like that but I think I think you're have you read that book or have you heard about small yep. giant that intentionality I think is uh is counter to it it is not something that um uh, people that are starting a business that is not typically what they mm-hmm. think so what what do you think was sort of the uh the reason why you picked that yeah it's hard to say i mean i think it's because i care so much about the product and in the actual experience um if i'm trying to make something cheaper and faster there's other ways of doing it of mass manufacturing and if i'm just trying to get global distribution then i would have to change the way we're doing it because the way we're doing it is not infinitely scalable um, we're working with like Amish woodworkers who literally are making and finishing these wood products in their barns. Like this is like old school craftsman style mm-hmm. approach and they can't crank out a hundred thousand in two weeks. If I was like, I need a, you know, an order for a big box store. Um, but to me, it's because the product is just so much better done this way versus trying to scale and cut corners and figure out like optimizing the cheapest way of doing things. So to me, as a designer, I care so much about, and I call my products, they feel like kids to me. It's like, yeah. I, I want to make sure when I pass this off and this is sitting, this product is sitting on your desk that I, my name's attached to it and I want to be proud of what we've done. Um, so yeah, sometimes I think I value that too much. Like as a design purist, I'm like mm-hmm. so obsessed with like, we're using solid wood. We're using like the best, you know, finish. We're using all of these things because I care. But even though the end consumer may not know all of those things, there is a difference when that product sits on their desk next to something they bought at, you know, X big box store. Yeah. And people do notice. I think people subconsciously notice and that's why they keep coming back for more. There's a lot of choices that make up and we'll talk about brands and things like that, but there's a lot of choices that go into uh, the, the direction that, you, that you're taking the business. What was kind of a moment where one of the ones that are like, that's real um, obvious to you, where you're like, I'm making this choice and we're we're gonna maybe make a counterintuitive business decision to commit to this the the way we're building this business. What's 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 a moment that it was just like nope that the best business decision would be this, but we're gonna go this way because it's mm-hmm. it's gonna honor our our legacy, our story, and who we are. Yeah. So a year and a half ago, we opened up our first uh, headquarters warehouse slash product design studio in Downingtown, Pennsylvania, where I live, and. Having a physical space where we're doing all of the shipping, the fulfillment, the product inspection, product photography, customer service, literally all under one roof, like with actual walls around us, you know, we can't expand beyond those walls. There's like some limitations um, until we get more space and we you know, can can expand. But doing it that way versus outsourcing everything, um, because we had some bad experiences with outsourcing to 3PL shipping partners and, and outsourcing other aspects of the business, 
that just, it felt like, no, I'm losing control. Like I need this back. You know, I, I care too much. I don't want customers having this experience. This doesn't reflect on Ugmonk. So yeah, we're doing things the long, hard way, which is means like we're bringing everything in, you know, my employees and my team, they're inspecting every product. When you send a return to us, it's going directly to the person that sent you the email back that's writing, you know, that you're chatting with and the product is sitting on their desk. And that to me just felt like this is the sustainable way of doing it. It's not the the Amazon, the drop shipping, like all of these things out there, um, but because we care. And that was like, a we kind of put our stake in the ground. Like we're opening this space and we have like a showroom in the front, we can have customers in, but we're opening this space to do it all in-house because we care so much. Yeah. Um, and I don't know any other way. <laughs> like I just don't, maybe it's a, a trust issue, but I just don't trust anyone else. I'd rather have it all there with my team working on things to know that like the Ugmonk brand, the, our reputation and everything is gonna be intact. Yeah, that reminds me of Tony Shea with uh, Delivering Happiness. Mm -hmm. His lesson was, and they eventually got bought by Amazon, but they had outsourced what they considered their core competency, mm -hmm. which was shipping, right? And that experience. And that was his biggest lesson was never outsource your core competency, mm -hmm. right? And I, I think that that's, uh, that's really awesome to hear uh, the way that you're uh, approaching things. What is a moment that like, I'm uh, just learning about how your brain works and you're constantly thinking ahead and constantly thinking about things what is a, uh, uh, it keeps me up at night kind of moment as it relates to, is there a moment where you hit, hit a, I don't know, like, a an accelerating point and you're like, and we have to start saying no to shipments. What are some of those thoughts that you have about that, you know, maybe keep you up at night a little bit? Yeah. There's some tension there because I'm trying to design products that I want more and more people to enjoy. So when I'm talking about constraints, it's not like I'm only making 10 of something, like a fine artist and there's an addition of 10, 10 people own that. Like I still wanna make products that can be distributed widely to the people that, that enjoy them and appreciate yeah. them. So there's a there's like this tension of growth and we're talking about the fisherman story. Like I wanna grow sustainably, I wanna do that. But what happens like if we have that Oprah moment where it's mm -hmm. like, oh no, like mm -hmm. what are we gonna do? Um, you know, the shark tank effect yes. where things go that big and my, the, the biggest stressor for me is how do we keep the quality the same at 100,000 units as we were doing at 1,000 units? And that's really, really hard to do. You see big brands struggle with this all the time as yeah. they grow, they lose that, like the, the core essence of the what essence, they were, yeah. right? Like the, you know, if you run a guitar company and you're, somebody's crafting each guitar body by hand, it's perfect. And then all of a sudden some famous guitarist has their guitar and like everybody wants it. It's really hard to take that and multiply that. So there's a tension there between how, how do we scale that level of detail mm -hmm. um and brands it is possible but it just takes a lot of work and so that's the part where i'm like man i'm gonna i need some really key people to be overseeing all sections of production but we have control so we're doing it in-house and we may have to say this product doesn't ship for two years yeah. or like we have you know you're on a waiting list for two years which would be a really big bummer but i'd rather do that than just push stuff out the door and start just throwing you know throwing stuff out there just to make customers get the product sooner yeah but you have like a unique kind of like global phenomenon that happened that made everybody wait, <laughs> right? Exactly. So you have this unique moment right now where people are, don't have that, you know, they don't, you know, we have the uh, Amazon will deliver same day and all the, all these kinds of things that, you know, people commonly expect or food will show up to your house in 30 minutes or, um, but you have this unique sort of COVID experience that people are like, you know, I'm willing to wait for great things. Mm -hmm. And so is that something that you, that you think about as like, I mean, do you have stuff that is on a waiting list right now? Um, not currently, but like the way we're doing things when we launch a, launch a Kickstarter campaign or a crowdfunding campaign, it's like, 
you're backing that campaign. You may have to wait six, nine, 12 months before you receive the product. Mm -hmm. um, and, and one, people, you know, they don't like to wait, but there is something about the anticipation of waiting for that thing and then finally getting it that's actually almost better because the instant gratification of like, I can go on Amazon and have something in 30 minutes and you're excited about it, it arrives and it's kind of like, eh, you know, push it aside. Yeah. There's something about like when you're waiting, you know, we're talking about cars and people on waiting lists for mm -hmm. the the Rivian or like yeah. these things. they're waiting for like the Bronco for two and a half years. Totally. Like there is something special about that and it's hard and people are not patient and you get a lot of emails saying like, hey, when is my order shipping? But I think the, the right consumer and the right uh, experience, when you get that, it's that much better. Like yeah. it's that much sweeter to get yeah, the thing yeah, that yeah. you've been waiting for. So yeah, I mean, we don't like to keep people waiting intentionally, but if that happened, I think we would take the approach of like keeping people up to date with what's going on yeah. versus like, all right, we're just switching manufacturers and we're no longer doing the craftsman approach. We're just making it out of plastic and here you go. Like we're never going to do that. So yeah. yeah, it's 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 tricky. I think for a physical products company to scale is very different than a software company or a tech company that can kind of push out to more people faster. Yeah, that's, that's a really well said. I, I think uh, I just kind of think about uh, this slow and steady kind of wins the race. How have you, um, I don't know, really committed, uh, like like think about some of the operations inside the business. What what are some of the other ways, other than just scale, what are some of the other things you've done to just be slow and steady as it relates to commercializing these, these products? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the way that we launch products is different too. And this is for better or for worse, where we're not, we don't have a quota we have to hit each quarter of like, mm -hmm. we launched X number of products. Um, now that can also be a problem if we're not launching things for, mm -hmm. for a while in between there, but we're able to kind of, you know, we meaning me, as I'm able to dictate that pace, we're able to say like, let's hold off, let's hold off, let's hold off. And we run such a small boutique style studio that it's okay to kind of have some of these ebbs and flows where we're not worried about numbers and we don't have anybody breathing down our neck to say like, you know, the investors aren't like, where's the three products you were supposed to launch in the last mm -hmm. three weeks. So it allows us to kind of create that our flow and the way that we do things. But my idea and the way that I look at it is like layering things on top. So when we launch a product, I don't want that product to just arc and then fall off. And then we have the next product. I'm trying to layer things on there. We've been selling products on our site for 10 plus years, the mm -hmm. exact same product. Mm -hmm. We haven't changed it. We haven't you know, had to do anything. So I try to make things, these like timeless products that we can sell and we can layer onto each other that kind of closes those gaps and allows things to when one thing falls off, maybe there's supply issues. The other things take that place. Um, doing things in a different way than, than again, capitalizing on the trends and trying to blow out something really quick. Yeah, I like that timeless idea. I mean, that that's a that's core to your strategy with minimalism, right? It's like mm -hmm. it is timeless and something that you can keep sort of doing over and over again. That's that's powerful. I, uh, do you worry about competition? Yes and no, uh, probably a lot less than people might think. Um, and it goes back to just finding our own path and doing our own way. Like we explored a little bit, you know, if you if you put a product on Amazon and it does well, you will be knocked off and reverse engineered almost instantly. Um, so we actually experimented a little bit of that, pulled everything off, and like not even bothering with that. When people are buying an Ugwang product, they're not usually price comparison shopping and looking at, you know, different reviews around this plus that. You either want it or you don't, mm -hmm. and you're appreciating it for what it is. There's cheaper versions of everything out there than what's on our site. Um, but the way that we're making things, it's like when you're going to buy a real product uh, from a brand, 
if you're looking for a pair of Nikes, you're going to buy the ones that are actual Nikes. The people that were going to buy the knockoffs, we're going to get the knockoffs anyways. But most people are trying to find the real thing. Yeah. Um, so I kind of, I, I mean, we're no, obviously nowhere on the level of an Apple or a Nike. But when people that appreciate the Ugmonk brand, they're trying to find the real thing. They're not necessarily comparison shopping and looking like, oh, Amazon has a cheaper version of this. They were going to buy that anyways. But the people that are looking for the nicer quality made product are going to buy from us. So the competition part, yeah, it keeps me up at night sometimes when you see people. I mean, we've gotten knocked off more times than mm-hmm. I'd like to admit. Um, and it kind of hurts as a designer, like as a creative. It's like you're stealing my art. Like I, yeah. I put my heart and soul into this thing. Um, but I try to just kind of keep moving forward. But, you know always be one step ahead and yeah. there's going to be people there's always people going to be knocking off and kind of leeching on the the success of something that we do yeah that's powerful i, I you know as it relates to i mean you've talked about uh, uh branding uh a number of times and i think that um you know you can a, a lot of companies right as the marketing person right a lot of companies think you know that your brand is a logo and maybe the colors that you use and some of the similar photography or whatever whatever right this there's, there's an aesthetic mm-hmm. and I, I sort of think of, um, you know, and, and I, I think brands are more owned by the company, but the reputation is held by everybody else. Mm-hmm. Right. So what are, what are some of the things as it relates to, uh, kind of brand development that, um, that you've put into the business that you're intentionally saying, this is a part of our brand. This is a part about, of, of who we are and sort of how do you ratify that you're you know, the, that brand attributes showing up in the, in the, in the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brand is not just the logo and, and, uh, I think we talk about rebrands and we talk about rebranding or we see the old logo and we see the new one and how does that affect, and that's a very small part of what a brand is and how people perceive something. There's actually been like backlash when some of these big brands have rebranded. I don't know if you remember like gap rebranded back oh, yeah. in, uh, a number of years ago and the consumers were just like, this is terrible. I can't stand it. And, you know, they actually reverted back to their other one. But what that means is like there's something deeper than just the logo. I think when we think of uh, when we hear a brand's name, it's what comes to mind when we hear that, not just the visuals, but what do we think about? So when you, you know, using Gap as an example, customers had some nostalgia or had something connected to it that they cared more about than just like changing the logo. You know, if Coca-Cola changed their logo, there would be a huge uproar because mm-hmm. that has there's some there's a connection. There's a deeper level of meaning to people in the brand. So for Ugmonk, like when I when people hear the word Ugmonk or they think of us or they they land on our website, what I want them to be thinking of is yeah quality. They care about people, the customer experience, uh, the craftsman approach. Like all of that should pop into their head. And and yes, there's an aesthetic and there's a minimalism and there's a simplicity to what we're doing. But you don't really. I think it's a subconscious thing. And we're trying to deliver like this customer experience from the time you land on our site. Or, you know, you see our Instagram or you message me, which is literally like I'm still managing our social media. It's a very personal approach to, to connect with other people that value the things that we're about, which is making timeless products and making them long, the long, hard way. Um, and what's really cool about that is it's relational and it's human. And it's like we're so into this transactional approach of, yeah, Amazon and ticket number support level of this. It's totally different when it's like I'm talking to a real person across the screen. And when they write in, let's have a conversation. Let's continue that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it's, yeah, it's a really human thing that I want Ugmonk to feel like that. Like they know, like if I send it back or have the wrong size, we get these reviews like, wow, you were so helpful. It's like, all we did was send you the new product. But mm-hmm. compared to everything else, the bar is so low. We want our experience from the product to the experience to the, the way you browse our site to feel a certain way. 
Um, and that's what brand really means to me. It's more than just the logo. Like we don't actually put our logo on our products. You know, there doesn't say Ugg Monk on all the shirts and everything um, because it's not about that. It's about the feeling and what it evokes when you hear the word Ugg Monk. So you're saying somebody, cause there's the, I think we just called recall, right? It's like when somebody says the name Ugg Monk, there's this feeling or an emotion or, or um, s- these, I don't know, things that people think about or attributes but you just talked about like not having the name, but experiencing, right, the aesthetic or experiencing the, or, you know, the service or whatever. And people think Ugmuck. That is much harder to do, mm-hmm. right, than the one it's like, here's our, here's our name. This is how you should think about us. Yeah. Yeah. And companies want to kind of cheat that system, right? They want to, you're, you're building something from scratch. I want to, I need a logo. I need a catchy name. Let's use some trendy color palette. And then people are going to know that we care. It's like, you see, you know, you scroll Instagram for any amount of time and there's brand after brand after brand. I'm like, I've never heard of any of these and I have no level of trust. But then you think of legacy brands that people, you know, the Patagonias of the world or what, you know, John Deere or Mercedes mm-hmm. or anything that's been Levi's that's been doing stuff for a long time. There's a level of like trust and and consumer, the consumer sees that when they hear the word Patagonia, they think a certain thing. Yeah. And they've done that over decades and decades and decades of time. When they first started, it had no connotation. Mm-hmm. So. I think, again, it's a long, slow approach to doing that, but a brand can't just be created out of thin air. Like a celebrity brand that just starts, the celebrity has clout, but if the product is terrible, yeah. like the brand goes away and people notice. So yeah, I think a brand is is just so much more than branding in a yeah. sense. I mean, that's a big part of it, but it's not just the, the way it looks. So the thing that is uh, striking me about some of the stuff that you're saying is you've got these instincts, right? As it relates to brand building and, um, there's this whole science behind it as well, but you are uh, like, you've made those discoveries. And do you, would you consider yourself like a self-taught uh, branding expert? Yeah, I don't even know if I'd call myself a branding expert, but yeah, I think that a lot of these things, you know, I've, I've tried to learn and glean from other people that have done it and, and really soak in, in as much information as I can from, from looking at, you know, why does BMW carry so much weight? Why does Apple have such this, you know, elevated approach to everything, learning like what those brands are doing and just kind of applying it mm-hmm. to me, that's common sense. I'm like, is there any other way of doing it? Um, because I'm constantly worried and not worried, but I'm constantly like conscious of that reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, my name, you know, Jeff Sheldon is on our, you know, our website is on the thing. Yeah. And my face is on the brand. Like, even though I don't like putting myself out there, I'd rather the products have the spotlight and I'm kind of behind the scenes, mm-hmm. but there's something that that's good about that because it keeps me accountable. Like I can't create XYZ brand and just have whatever happen to it and do things. And there's Kickstarter project projects that launch and then they never f- fulfill the product Yeah, and then they go dark and there's nothing really to lose. Cause nobody really knew what happened behind the scenes. I'm so connected to what we're doing that I have to deliver. Like oh, it's that's good. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a good problem or a good tension to have. Cause I want to make sure that we're delivering on that because it reflects on me. Um, as the you know the creator and the designer of the product. See, and that's a, uh, I think that, that that can be a really interesting accountability model, right? Where mm-hmm. the, the way that you, that's a, that's a way that you think. And I think as it relates to brands, you know, I, I think the hardest part for brands is really is what's at the center, what you believe, how you think, how you act, right? How you speak, how you appear. And something that's really account, like I've noticed about you is like, you really know what you believe, you have, you're super clear on how you think, right? And then the way that you act, right? You're sitting here saying like, 
uh, hey, my name's on this. Um, it's a really important to me. I want people to have a great experience. And because you understand people and you also uh, want to hold yourself accountable, you work through what it takes to execute. And I think that that really, really matters. And that's why I'm saying, you know, I, I called you a brand expert, but yeah. you know, I mean, you definitely, you you got the chops, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if you go look at your website, you go look online, I mean, you've got, you know how to build something and draw attention to it without um, self-aggrandizement or, uh, you know, massive amounts of paid promotion and things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, and I would, I would caveat that there's still, and this maybe helps people think about it, there still is always the imposter syndrome of mm -hmm. like, what if people knew I'm just making this all up, right? Like I didn't get certified in brand, being a brand expert or like I had, you know, whatever. Um, the imposter syndrome for anyone that's making something, I think hits at a certain point where they're like, what if they find out we're just trying to do this and we're not as good as people thought we were. Um, but I think that's natural and I think that's okay. And it kind of, that, again, that's momentum and motivation to like keep doing the thing and realize once you realize when you take the curtain back off anything that nobody knows what they're doing yes. and everyone's making it up, it's kind of comforting, but as a, as a business owner and an entrepreneur, whatever type of business you run, that can be a little bit intimidating. Like, you know, I don't have 30 years of experience in running, you know, a lawn care business. What if I just started tomorrow and people realize I'm not that, but it's, it's actually okay. And I think that's where I found kind of comfort in that imposter syndrome keeps me accountable to like, mm -hmm. keep doing them. I want to create great work. I want the work to speak for itself. I want people to have a great experience. But there's still the times where I'm like, I don't know that I'm qualified. I don't know I'm qualified to be on this podcast, right? <laughs> like I'm, I'm just trying. But I think that's it's okay to feel that way. And you realize that most people are putting on a front too. But in, in entrepreneurship, it can get lonely when you're like carving your own path, and everyone, you know, your family is looking at you like, what are you guys doing? Like this is, did you read a business book about this? And you're like, you have that imposter syndrome kick in, and you don't have to be an expert in those things in order to to do good work. That's awesome. The, the reality is, is though that those mindsets and those challenges show up all the time. And a big part about being a successful entrepreneur is being able to push through those, overcome them, uh, use them to your advantage. Right. And things like that. Well, what some of that's kind of coming to me is like, you know, uh, you talked about rebranding uh, and you talked about just how the evolution, maybe the journey of the brand. How would you sort of uh, let's let's say there's a, another let's just say retailer out there. What is something and they're they're thinking about their brand. What is something that like advice wise you'd give to them about how they should think about brand that designing their brand or being intentional with it? It's a broad, broad question to try to tackle in one answer. But I think the first thing is to just step back and think about what are the goals of what you're doing? Like, what is the brand about? <clears throat> I think we're talking minimalism. We're talking simplicity most people are trying to do too many things at once and it confuses the customer. You land on the website, you're not sure where to click, what to do, um, because there's opportunity everywhere and you can always add on services. You can add on this, you can add on that, but less is really more. So if you had to take, you know, take your website and strip it down to 10% of what's on there, what would the 10% be that's left and kind of thinking through like, what is the core that differentiates your business from everyone else? What is the core that like, if you, you literally could not take that, out or your business wouldn't exist. Um, because oftentimes I think it's clouded. Our businesses get clouded by all of this other stuff that's nice to have, but it's not essential. But really getting back to like, what is essential in your business? Like, why are you doing it? What is your mission? And do those other things even matter? So stripping away, trying to get back to the, the minimalist approach, mm -hmm. but in a way that allows you to take your core competency or your differentiator or the one product that everyone is asking for and put all of your eggs in that basket and really push harder on that. It just 
you're able to like headspace, you're able to be a lot clear, clearer, clearer in your messaging and how you think about your business and how people perceive your business when you're doing less. Yeah. What's what what are maybe some questions that they could ask themselves, right? Like to to get to that clarity, right? To get to the the 10% that's left. Mm -hmm. I think the first one is just, you know, what are we doing that that no one else is doing? Or what is what are we doing that's unique to us? Maybe the other people are still doing it, but they're a smaller percentage. If there's something unique about their approach to what they're doing. So, you know, even for us, the craftsman style business and doing everything in-house and and doing things like that, that's unique to us. And that's that's not how most e-commerce businesses are operating right now. It's mm -hmm. manufacturing overseas, it's outsourcing fulfillment, it's all of that. Um, and that's actually something we need to do a better job messaging to our customers, but that's like a differentiator. So thinking about your business through those lenses of like what really sets you apart. Um, if I could just fill in some other business's name in your mission statement and it reads identical, like maybe you don't have a clear enough idea of what you are and what you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. um, I think sometimes mission statements get so vague that it's like, does it mean anything, right? Yeah. And and I think a good a good question or a good test would be like, go ask some of your best customers or your friends to describe your business. And if they can't describe it, and they're like, ah, you do something with something, but I don't know what it is, like, try to get it to a point where you can explain it to a five year old. Mm -hmm. um, get that business, distill it down into something that makes sense for somebody to understand, instead of a lot of jargon and big words and things that don't really make sense to the end user. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's brilliant. I mean, uh, getting feedback on, uh, as an entrepreneur, getting feedback from people that you can trust is super powerful. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes, you know, um, that feedback, you know, sometimes we're unapproachable with that feedback, but asking for it makes you more approachable. Mm -hmm. you and know? getting feedback from people that will give you the honest answers. Yes. Uh, you know, family and friends are good, but they're gonna usually, you know, they're, they're probably gonna cheer you on and say, yeah, you know, congrats, this is awesome. I love all of them. You know, here's six options. And they're like, I like all of them. That's great. But like, you have to find those people that are willing to like speak the truth into, this is a terrible idea. You need to stop, you need to take this off, like stop doing this or, you know, this feels wrong or this whatever. And having people give you honest feedback is is really important to, to kind of keep you accountable. What are some of the pockets of, uh, of people that you have that help speak into or have spoken into the business? Yeah, I mean, I've developed relationships with other business owners over the years um, just throughout, you know, the interwebs of connecting mm -hmm. with people. And I value these relationships, um, whether it was like a conversation, you know, on Twitter and then we end up talking more about it, but kind of looking at them and, and appreciating or admiring what they're doing from maybe a branding perspective or a design perspective. And I'll send them some concepts and I'm like, give, give me the real feedback here, you know, tell me which one of these is good or do they all suck? Do we need to start over again? Um, but having those people and those relationships is, has been key to kind of filter everything through. And then uh, my older brother is, a, is my business partner and we started ever since the very, very beginning. But I kind of use him also as a sounding board. He, I, you know, he has a good, uh, less emotional, less gut driven brain than I do. I'm very like feelings based. Mm -hmm. So when I, when I run it by him, he can look at it kind of black and white. Yeah, this makes sense. This doesn't make sense. Or yeah, go for it. And it's helpful because I'm a very, yeah, like it feels good. Let's do yeah, it. Let's this do is a it. great opportunity. Is, yeah. Let's let's go for it. I love the way this this could look and be. And then he's like, this doesn't make sense. Um, so having somebody like that that can take a more objective approach to help you kind of peel back the emotion or in the yeah. moment, I get really excited about something and it's like, all right, let's take a step back. Does this align with what we're trying to do? Or is this actually going to push off the main core competency of what we're trying to do? And that, so you do have a cutting room floor and it's, yeah. it's feedback. Yeah. That's, that's really good. Well, um, 
something that is, uh, I'd say really powerful about your products, right? Is the, the pa packaging experience. So I, I mean, I would love for you to kind of say, uh, give us, give us the play by play on what, how you think about packaging and some of the concepts or, or principles that you use when you're thinking about packaging. Packaging is a, an art form in and of itself. And I think now we're receiving who knows how many packages a day, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that show up on our doorstep because we're so used to ordering stuff online. Um, I've kind of come full circle on this. So this might surprise people, but there's the Apple approach of packaging, which is like this unbelievable unboxing experience. If you've ever taken a, you know, an iPhone out of the box and the, the lid slides off just perfectly and the box opens and all the inserts, I think that's amazing. I think it's great for a small business like us. There's no way we can compete with that or even spend that much on packaging. Um, but I used to be more into like, yeah, let's create this unbelievable presentation. But what happens is you're end up, you end up with these really beautiful boxes and you have nothing to do with them. So I'm sure a lot of people still, if they're like me, it's like, I have all these Apple boxes in my closet. I don't know why I keep them, but they were too nice to throw away. Yes. But I'm not using them for anything. Yeah. They're same. there. They're just, they're, you know, they're nice to study from a packaging design perspective. Um, but there's a lot of waste in packaging. And I've kind of come full circle to, I'm like, how can I deliver that Apple-like experience or that Ugmonk level experience through something that doesn't create so much waste? So can we create a package, you know, when you unbox it, can it still feel like it has those extra touches, um, those extra hu human touches in the way that we print the box or the way we open it up, but you're not left with like a whole pile of stuff where you're like, I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. You know, I can't really use it for anything else. Or can we reuse the box for something else? Um, so yeah, we're going, when we look at people, how many boxes we have to throw away a day, it does start to make sense to be like, okay, we don't need to create something that is a gift box that could only be used once, yeah. even though it looked amazing. Um, but can we use just regular materials and use design as the kind of the, the tool and the differentiator to print the box a certain way, to hide a little slogan on here, um, to use things that are a craft paper instead of a plastic bag, like not even just from an environmental standpoint, but just from like, we don't need all of this extra stuff. But that doesn't mean you have to sacrifice and it has to be an Amazon box with, you know, a package, uh, you know, a pack of batteries like this and a box that's this big full of packing peanuts and stuff yeah. like that. I think there's like different ways. It should feel like the brand. And I think what we want our packaging to feel like at the end of the day is simple and thoughtful. And then that it's also able to, you know, not sit around in your closet for the next 10 years. Well, I mean, that's min minimalist and useful right there. It's like mm -hmm. your packaging is following that, that exact approach, which is, which is amazing. And I think, um, I, I, I would say that that is one of the things very few brands, uh, put attention on like that level of attention. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a really powerful experience. It's, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, um, oh my gosh, what is the, the Maya Angelou saying where she's like, um, uh, people may never remember what you say, but they'll always, they'll, uh, they may, uh, remember what you say that they may forget what you say, but never, uh, forget how you made them feel. Mm. I was terrible getting that out. <laughs> you guys can edit that. But that whole thing, you're, you're delivering, you're, you're trying to design and intentionally deliver a feeling in every single touch point and mm -hmm. packing packaging's just one of the many. Yeah. Yeah. And in a world where we're shipping products, I mean, we ship products over 85 countries and they going halfway across the world, that packaging is an important part. I mean, first it needs to protect the product. It needs to serve the purpose of it. Um, but can we add little bits of delight into that experience that do feel and represent who we are as a brand? Um, without going overboard you know there's there's brands that have amazing packaging and they spend all this money you know thirty dollars on a box but the product inside is actually worse than the packaging <laughs> and uh we're, we're going through this you know this whole uh direct to consumer brand 
kind of bubble where everything looks beautiful. Everything looks gorgeous. The branding, the logos, all of the actual like visuals on it are really, really nice. And it gets you to buy once. You're like, oh man, I keep yeah. getting an ad for that. That looks yeah. sweet. But when the product inside doesn't live up to that hype or doesn't feel like that same experience, it's a one and done thing, right? So the product has to be better than the packaging. The product has yes. to continue that experience. And the product is what you'll will get people to come back and reorder. Mm -hmm. um, and the number of customers, like I don't know what our return customer rate is offhand, but it's very, very high because once we get an Ugmunk product in their hands, they're more than likely gonna come back and buy again because the product, and I'm trying to push, like there's a theme here, like trying to make great products and the products do the marketing and, the com and it draws people back in. Yeah, which is powerful because uh, we talk about repeat business on here all the time. And it's like five times easier than, I mean, to, to uh, keep a customer you have, then go get a new one. And I would say that that fits into your marketing mix really, really well. Because you and I were talking shop about websites, uh, you know, uh, just before the conversation. And, you know, I was talking about your link profile, right? Which talks, you got a really rich link profile on, on Ugmunk. So talk to us about how you discovered the name and then how you've sort of shied away from paid, but you have over the past, you know, decade plus have brought a lot of digital attention to, to the ugmunk.com site. Yeah, the um, name was a complete kind of accident and just like an inside joke. We, when I was starting the t-shirt side of things and I was like, I got to call this something and I guess I got to build a website. And that's when I picked up the, picked up my phone and I was like, talk to my brother, can you help me build a website? Cause he's a web developer or a software developer. And um, that's how much I had thought through it. I was like, I guess we got to call it something, right? Um, had I thought that I'd be doing this 14 years later, maybe I would have <laughs> spent some more time and invested more trying to think about the name and what it represents. But what's happened is actually when we Googled the word Ugmonk originally, we're, it's just an inside joke. We actually haven't revealed where it came from. So it's like our little secret. Okay. Maybe someday we'll, we'll break that out. That's like our... gonna come out in the documentary. Yeah, yeah, in the documentary that uh, 25th anniversary or something. Yeah, there you we'll go. <laughs> um, but we, we were just kind of throwing words out there and then we're looking up like what URLs were open because it's really hard to get a single yeah, word.com. And we're like, oh, Ugmunk. And there was only a couple of results and it was in another language and the URL was open. We're like, oh, what the heck, let's just get it. So we grabbed Ugmunk.com literally had no idea what we were like going to be using this. And then I designed a logo and, and created a brand around that. It was because it was all about the products. I was just like, I got to have this way to sell yeah. the products. And uh, what happened though is now that was like a happy branding accident because if you Google the word Ugmonk, there's over a hundred or 200,000 results that come back to us as Ugmonk because yeah. we're the only Ugmonk out there. Yeah. Um, and that was unintentional, but it kind of is cool because we, we were able to define what Ugmonk is. So when that Ugmunk word comes into your brain, if you know what the brand is, you associate it with those things. We didn't have to like peel back the layers of like previous connotations or like, oh, is that the outdoor brand? Is that the, you know, all of these other things that it could have been connected to? And yeah, so here we are. So you Google the word Ugmunk, it's gonna show up our site and our brand and articles have been written about us and, and blog features and a lot of that organic press that happened in the, the earlier days, pre-social media, mm -hmm. um, which was powerful to get the word out. And just, it's been an organic, you know, like one person buys a product and tells the friend, they tell two friends, they tell two more friends and we're shipping products to countries I've never heard of. Yeah. Is that a country or a state? You know, like it's, know. it's literally wild. That's amazing. I, 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 so you're you, the amount of international, like, was that a big learning curve for you? Just yes. shipping internationally? Yeah, we have a very large global customer base. I mean, it's like the US is obviously our main customer base, but there's just so many people that have, have found us through all different ways 
through organic press, through just seeing their friends have it. Um, and I didn't expect that at all. I'd never shipped anything internationally before. Yeah. So the first, I think it was like the second or third order that we got when I launched the site was from Australia. And I said, I don't even know how to ship something there. <laughs> like, I don't think we were charging enough. I didn't know anything about customs forms and we're like writing them out by hand and just all of that. Um, but yeah, we have such a global customer base. And I think it's, what's cool is that, like I said before, we're using digital technology to find the people that appreciate the quality and the, the aesthetic and the way that, that we design our products. And it doesn't matter if you live halfway across the world or if you live, you know, two miles from my house, you can still buy that same product. And the internet has flattened that out and made it really possible for us. Yeah. Well, you, you think about, uh, like if you think about the website, right, it's like um, you know how to get attention to it. You guys have done a great job. You've done a lot of brand building to, to, to get the attention that you have. What uh, what are some of the things as it relates to like advice you would give to uh, maybe another retailer or something like that about how to really approach your website? Just the thinking that that you have, what minimalist uh, thinking would be um, kind of applied to building a website? What are some of the lessons that you've learned about just web design and, and web development? Yeah, I wouldn't con consider myself a web expert either, um, but I, I think of it as our virtual store window. So if you're thinking about a physical store location, it's easy to think about what's our window display going to be? What's our, you know, what's the first thing customers experience when they see, when they walk in the door and they experience that. Um, so I think of a website as the same thing, right? So people, maybe they, they found out about you from a friend, they go, go to your site, land on the page. You're, you're basically seeing that window display. You want to see like, what's their best product? What are you known for? and then kind of walk them through the store in a way, in a, in a physical way, but doing that, replicating that in a digital way. Um, and I, I think websites can be really tricky because you have the ability to put as much information as you want all on one page. You can cram it in, you can, mm -hmm. you can lose all the white space, you can change stuff. Um, and the tendency is to just keep putting more and more and more and have widgets popping up and this and that and spin to win and coupons. It's like, if you walked into a physical store and somebody hit you over the head with a discount code before you could even see the product, it's like, wait, what's going on here? Like, I was just coming to check this out and browse. Um, but you think about like when you come along, when you go into a nice uh, retail store and a good experience and the sales rep comes alongside you and is helping you kind of understand your needs and what you want. And like, you know, if you're looking for shoes for running, they're able to like walk alongside you, help you, guide you, let you look at things, uh, but provide the information that's needed. Digital shouldn't be any different, right? Like we shouldn't be skipping all of those steps and just being like, how do we convert quicker? How do we just get people to click buy now? Like people still want to understand the product. They want to understand the service. They want to know what they're getting into instead of hiding pricing till the end, right? Like if you walked into a retail store and there's no prices on anything, one, you know, it's very, very expensive. Yeah. And two, you're just confused. People are like, oh, I would have thought this was $100, not $1,000. So in the web experience, I don't know why we lost all of these human ways that we interact with product, but it seems to be that people kind of skip skip that and they hide those things or they push people to convert before even understanding the product. Um, but try to like, I try to always think about it through like that lens of walking through this digital retail store. Yeah, that's the humanizing of that's really huge, especially digital. Like, uh, I, I, you know, a saying that I, that I say often is that a confused mind always says no. Mm -hmm. And so on a website, when you put all of these options out there and you put all of the stuffing, right, if you will, and all the clutter, uh, you have less conversions. Mm -hmm. But if you make it clear, and the thing is, is that it's a part of your brand, right? Clarity. We talked about, you know, minimalism being that. Um, it's a practice that you have, but that's something that I think every uh, everyone with a website should adopt is core message, 
you know, core product, why you matter, why it matters. And without all of the stuffing and getting people to get that impression and be able to take a, take a step towards you rather than only take a step towards buying, mm -hmm. right? Well, t tell me about, um, like, let's just go 30,000 foot view on the, you know, maybe the, the uh, past of Ugmunk. What is uh, maybe the biggest lesson as an entrepreneur that uh, that you've had that you're you, this sort of like something that you you would want to share with you know people that watch this podcast or listen to it? And these are loaded questions. Loaded, man. <laughs> yeah, I think. Oh man, looking back, um, it can be intimidating when you're constantly comparing yourself and looking to other people and other brands and businesses to be the example that you're trying to imitate. And we all have this desire to be like, if I read the Steve Jobs biography, will I create the next Apple? Like you're, we're always looking for that, including me. Like I'm looking, you know, listening to other podcasts, hearing other people's stories and trying to be like, oh, I should do that. I should do that. Um, and I think when, when you're in the thick of running a business, we get really uh, kind of squirrel brain where we're constantly trying to look at everything, everything that's hot, everything that's new. And I gotta be on this new platform and I gotta do this, I gotta do this is to like pull back and and still, I mean, we're talking about the same theme. What is the core of what you're trying to do with your business? Do you need to be doing that, right? Do you need to be on TikTok? Do you need to be doing text messaging? Do you need to be doing email? Yeah. Like, do you need to be doing all of these things? But the tendency while, while you're building that, especially as you're trying to like aspire to be like another business or you, you look up to these things is to try to imitate without really thinking about what you're adding to your own business. Mm. And the answer a lot of times is like, no, we don't actually need that right now. Like you said, we weren't running any paid media or advertising for 13 years. And we just started this past year and we've, we've seen some good traction with it, getting in front of new uh, customers and, and, and seeing it work. But we didn't do that. And people looked at me like, why aren't you running Facebook ads? Like, you know, in the golden age of when Facebook was easy to essentially print money. Yeah. And like, I'm like, oh, we missed the boat on that. But yeah. you know what? We weren't. I was heads down making products and I was trying to, to, to build the Ugmonk brand. Um, but as a business owner, I think it's intimidating because there's just so many things you could be doing um, that it's okay to say no to a lot of them. So that's so good to hear. Well, I have some rapid fire questions for you. You ready? Yeah. First one's super hard. Um, what's your favorite color? <laughs> I'm gonna say black. Okay, I picked up on that. <laughs> I love that. We have some. We have one of those people here. That love black. Um, what was a, a what was the most recent? Like I, I see you as a person who uh, is has a practice of a removing distractions. What's the what's the most recent distraction you removed? Oh man, this is tough. Um, turned off all notifications on my phone except for texts and phone calls. I think is is a good one. So there's no you know if someone commenting on a post or Instagram, I don't even know until I open the app. Wow, that's good. All right, so do people in Philly really love cheesesteaks? And if so, where's the best one? Oh man, that's a risky one. Loaded questions. Yeah, like I could offend some people with this yeah. answer. Uh, people do love cheesesteaks, and a cheesesteak in Philly is the best cheesesteak. So when you're out other places, I don't know what they call them out here. If they call it a steak and cheese sandwich, it's not the same thing. Yeah. Um, and the two popular ones, uh, Pat's and Gino's in Philly, that you have to go to are probably not the best. Um, there's a place called uh, Delisandro's. Um, there's also a place called Jim's on South Street, but. Sometimes like the best cheesesteaks are like from a food truck on the side of the road mm -hmm. um, or some local pizza places around us. So yeah, it's it's a loaded question. Very opinionated. People in Philly are very opinionated on their cheesesteaks. I just love that you didn't pick one. You were like, well, yeah, let's just talk to about that. Trying to make everybody yeah, happy here. Super good. 
<laughs> I don't know that I have actually have actually tried to like put the crown on who's the best one. I know there's yeah. there's a place that makes a hundred dollar cheesesteak at uh, this steak place. I haven't tried it yet, but it's like yeah, incredible like Kobe beef, you know, with this whole like five course meal or something. But uh, yeah, a good old fashioned cheesesteak from a food truck is pretty good. Well, you know, you could be like uh, barstool sports and be like Dave Portnoy that going around to pizza, you could be the cheesesteak guy. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, it's good. All right. So in a single word, how would you describe uh your Philadelphia Ugmunk studio? Single word. Hmm. Uh beautiful. Okay. Wasn't a very confident answer, but if you've ever seen pictures of our space or where it is, it's right along the Brandywine River. Um, and it's a it's a really nice little place tucked away in the woods. Oh, that's super cool. All right. Would you ever build an app to bring your product, your analog product uh, to life digitally? I won't say never, but there are no plans for it. Yeah. I figured I was like, it's analog. Why would we take it? Digital? I actually, yeah. A lot of people have been have been asking, like, can I make can you make an app to complement analog? And uh, I think the beauty of analog is that it is analog and you do not pick up your phone or have to have a device inside to use it. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it is a beautiful product. Um, all right. Someone here in the office, and I'm not saying any names, but it rhymes with Schmevin said he once bought an Ugmunk t-shirt and he really loves, but he put on a few pounds since COVID. So I have uh, a multiple choice question here for you. It doesn't fit him anymore. So a, should he lose weight, uh, B buy a new shirt or C all of the above? Let's say see all of the above. Okay. I mean, we all we all need to get a little more active, including myself. So you heard his answer, Schmevin. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. So aside from uh, Ugg Monk, what's your favorite brand and why? Ooh. Picking favorites like this is like picking mm -hmm. your favorite kid. And Dude, this is minimalist. You're, we're picking directions here. This is clarity, right? Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to kind of steer this question a little bit different. My favorite designer is what I referred to before, Dieter Rams, who designed a lot of the brawn uh, products over mm -hmm. the years and heavily influenced Johnny Ive and Apple's design. Mm -hmm. You see a lot of that come through in the aesthetic. So he's touched a, a bunch of different brands. There's a shelving brand called Vitso, and they've been making these shelves for like 60 years in the UK. I just got them and put them up in my office. The timelessness and the, the way that everything that body, that brand embodies is something that, that I really, really appreciate. Okay. Uh, so this isn't a question, but a suggestion. So like we really love sushi. Um, and so do many other entrepreneurs. So um, are you open to making Ugmunk chopsticks? I mean, they'd be, they'd be pretty pretty legit chopsticks yeah. if we did it. Yeah. yeah, those are already pretty minimalist. Yeah, I think they'd be cool. Yeah, well, um, what's, a, what's maybe another entrepreneur that inspires you? Um, so my original inspiration, this goes way back and, and kind of gave me the, the confidence to do a lot of the things that I'm doing. Uh, he goes by Johnny Cupcakes and he started a t-shirt company that actually looked like a bakery and they only sell t-shirts. So people walked in, think they were getting cupcakes and he sold uh, shirts with cupcakes on them. But what, what I really appreciated about him was that he literally just beats to his own drum. The guy was doing things that no one else was doing. And everyone was like, why are you doing this? He would throw pizza parties in the middle of Boston just randomly and have 500 people show up and they'd rent a movie theater out and like just crazy stuff. And I think, before that, you're always looking at kind of the clear cut business leaders and models of the Jeff Bezos and all these people that have done things in a very big way. But I like that there's people just doing stuff that's kind of weird and different and doesn't fit into any box. And that that's kind of where you talked about is Ugmunk a, a CPG brand? Is it a retail brand? Yeah. And like it doesn't fit into any of those things. Like people used to call it a t-shirt brand. It's not really a t-shirt brand either. Um, so I like 
I think Johnny Cupcakes was way, way back in 2008, was like 2006 even, uh, was kind of that inspiration to be like, wow, you can do things and just make them up and do, the, do them completely different than anyone's done them before. I have never heard of that person, but that sounds ridiculously You cool. should look him up. Yeah, Pete, The pizza party just randomly, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. 500 people. All right, um, aside from chopsticks, um, what's next for Ugmunk? Yeah, so I hinted at this a little bit. Yeah. I'll give you a little bit more uh, teaser on here. Okay. Um, basically, yeah, I've been I've been designing a new system of products that's going to make your desk awesome. Okay. So that's all I can say right now. But all it's right. it's going to be uh, the biggest and most ambitious thing we've ever launched. Well, I don't know if you've uh, taken the tour, um, but uh, we are, I would say that this building specifically has some minimalist features. So uh, we love desks that are super. We would love a desk. That would be awesome. So yeah. that's that's exciting. But it's going to make any desk. Oh, awesome. make any so, desk. Yeah, awesome. we're not going to replace desks because okay. shipping desks is a little bit tricky. Sure. But what goes on top of the desk? Yeah, it's okay. it's going to be pretty cool. So yeah, in a, in a month or two, depending on when this drops, but it's going to be going to be live. So yeah, then you'll get to see the the full thing. Oh, that's exciting. Well, thanks for coming to spend time with us, Jeff. Good to good yeah. to get to know you and know about Ugmunk. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, man. <laughs>